You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Joining me today in segment two of the program is 40-plus year Forbes columnist, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Dr. Schilling will share with us uh, some really great information from his most recent newsletter, Insight, and we'll also be able to get his economic and financial forecast. You'll want to stay tuned for that. Often here on the program, we talk about the effect that private sector debt levels have on the economy. I mean, an analogy that we can use to explain this is that if you and your household have a lot of debt and a good portion of your income is consumed by servicing that debt, it makes it hard to buy something else on credit or it makes it difficult or more difficult to save money to buy something. Well, that's the case when the collective debt in the private sector gets too high as well. And as we've said on past programs, debt levels are once again back up there near where they were prior to the financial crisis. One of the areas in which debt levels have really risen is student loan debt. Student loan debt now sits at an all-time high of about $1.5 trillion. That's nearly double where it was just nine years ago. So student loan debt is increasing exponentially, and it's having a big effect on higher education and the way many people view higher education. Now, Kevin O'Leary, if you've ever watched Shark Tank, you'll probably know Kevin as Mr. Wonderful, recently commented on this very topic. He said, I don't recommend college for everybody. The fact is there's a lot of trade schools that would help you make a lot more money. Be a plumber. They get rich, he says. Everybody has to have a plumber, even in a recession. O'Leary says, you really need to think about school as an investment. It's going to cost you money and it's going to create a debt for you in many cases. Now that is really good advice. Merrill Lynch and Age Wave recently did a study and reported that 36% of college graduates who were paying off student loan debt said the debt they incurred to get a college education just wasn't worth it. Now, O'Leary was quoted in a CNBC article, and the CNBC article listed occupations that pay more than $55,000 a year and don't require a college degree. Some of these jobs include makeup artists, construction inspectors, building inspectors, electric power line installers and repairers, just to name a few. O'Leary says that those pragmatic type careers are good options. He says, when you think about all the trades, there's so much demand for this that people often overlook them saying, I'm going to poo-poo that career. O'Leary said, why? You can get rich a lot faster than getting a history major. Now, a few years ago, Forbes magazine published an article detailing this emerging trend. And this trend has only picked up steam in the meantime. I'm going to give you just a bit from that article. Recent graduates of the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology earned more on average than those graduating from Harvard. The median salary of the South, the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology 
graduates was $56,700. By contrast, the median salary of Harvard graduates, where the tuition is four times that of the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, was $54,100. So the trend is clear. Traditional higher education costs are rising, and a diploma from an institute of higher learning just isn't worth what it used to be. Now, what's contributing to this? Well, ironically, one of the factors is the wide availability of student loans. There's an economic principle behind this. The more easy credit that's available, the easier it is to fuel a price bubble. In fact, when you study price bubbles, you realize that you cannot fuel a price bubble without easy credit. This was true when real estate pr uh, prices plummeted more than a decade ago because lenders extended credit to marginally qualified borrowers who had little or no money down. The demand for real estate skyrocketed. Access to easy credit fueled that price bubble, which eventually burst. And the same principle is behind the surge in tuition costs. Forbes published another article on this very topic, and I'm going to give you just a bit from this article as well. Among the many sayings dubiously attributed to Albert Einstein is that the difference between stupidity and genius is that genius has its limits. Lack of limits and stupidity have another overlap in the Parent PLUS loan program, which allows parents of undergraduate college students to borrow unlimited sums from the federal government for their children's education. While observers of higher education have long suspected that this open-ended subsidy enables colleges to hike tuition, new evidence lends more credence to this theory. Several recent studies have found evidence that other federal student aid programs drive up tuition. A 2015 study found that a dollar of subsidized student loans increases published tuition by 58 cents at a typical college. A 2004 analysis found that for-profit colleges eligible for federal student aid charge tuition 78% higher than that of similar but aid-ineligible institutions. In other words, if the money is there and easily available, people will take it, just like during the real estate bubble and subsequent bust. Now, the other factor driving this trend is that it seems college education isn't as valuable as it once was. Ellen Ruppel-Shell wrote a piece in the New York Times. She says, We appear to be approaching a time when even for middle-class students, the economic benefit of a college degree will begin to dim. Since 2000, the growth in the wage gap between high school and college graduates has slowed to a halt. 25% of college graduates now earn no more than does the average high school graduate. Now, there are some analysts um, who would certainly agree with this position. James Agresti, who is president of Just Facts, Just Facts is a nonprofit institute dedicated to providing verifiable facts about public policy, wrote this. Academic time investment by full-time college students has fallen. During the school year, they are now spending about 50% more time on leisure activities and sports than on academics. 
There was a report recently published by the Review of Economics and Statistics that said full-time students allocated 40 hours per week toward class and studying in 1961, and by 2003, they were investing 27 hours a week. Declines were extremely broad and are not easily accounted for by framing framing effects, work, or major choices. We conclude that there have been substantial changes over time in the quantity or manner of human capital production on college campuses. Could it be that the less skin you have in the game, the less hard you work? The same report said this, Perhaps even most importantly, even among graduates of four-year colleges, many are not learning practical skills that increase their productivity. In 2014, Professor Richard Aram of New York University and Assistant Professor Josipa Roxa of the University of Virginia published a study using the Collegiate Learning Assessment to measure critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing skills of 1,666 full-time students who entered four-year colleges in the fall of 2005 and graduated in the spring of 2009. These people got done in four years. They were pretty bright. The authors found that if a test were rescaled to a 100-point scale, one-third of students would not improve more than one point over four years of college. That is a dismal statistic. Debt and easy credit often produces results opposite what one would think they might. We talk about these private sector debt levels in the book, New Retirement Rules. If you've not yet requested your free copy, you can do so by visiting newretirementrulesbook.com and requesting your copy of the book. The website, again, is newretirementrulesbook.com. I'll be back after these words with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure today of chatting once again with returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling's monthly Insight Newsletter is an extremely comprehensive 30- to 40-page report that includes extensive overviews of the economy, exhaustive investigations of key economic indicators and how they'll affect your investment portfolio, also, uh, Dr. Schilling uh, details uh, in, or examination, excuse me, examines in detail emerging markets and financial trends that could spell opportunity or danger for you or your investments. And Dr. Schilling also uh, commentates on all matters, great and small, in the newsletter. I enjoy reading it very much and uh, have some questions uh, for Dr. Schilling this month out of the June newsletter. If you'd like to learn more about the newsletter, you can call 888-346-7444. I'll be giving that number again in this segment. And the website, if you'd like to learn more, is agaryschilling.com. Dr. Schilling, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you again, Dennis. Well, Dr. Schilling, you uh, make quite a statement in your June Insight uh, issue. It says, you state uh, the very first line, U.S., a U.S. recession probably started in the current quarter. Why do you believe that? 
It's simply all the indicators that point that way. Uh, <clears throat> you look at what's happening with industrial production, uh, uh, housing, uh, a myriad of things. One very interesting thing, of course, is the employment area. And employment growth slows very slow, very rapidly at peaks and turns from expansion to contraction. And that's what we've seen uh, in employment. We had this extremely low increase in payroll deployments last month, 75,000, about a third of what it's been running. And, and another key factor here, which you always have it at economic peaks, is downward revisions. The revisions in data tend to be downward at peaks. They're upward at troughs, but when you see a number of them that are they're downward, uh, that's usually a pretty clear sign that the economy is slipping. And of course, we have it on a global basis. You look at you look at the uh, Organization of Internet for International Cooperation and Development. Their leading indicators uh, that's been declining. Back in the U.S., the New York Fed's index uh, for recession uh, forerunner that's that's gotten up to recessionary levels. Uh, there's a whole whole myriad of statistics that point that way. So, Dr. Schilling, uh, recessions obviously come in varying degrees of intensity. How do you see this one playing out? I think it'll be an average recession by post-World War II standards. Uh, there's nothing there that suggests we've got a, 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 a big decline that comes with usually a crisis. And there were three of them I would point out in earlier years. One was in the early 70s. We'd had rampant inflation in the late 60s. Many businesses thought it would last forever. So they double and triple ordered uh, inventories. They wanted to get them in before the prices went up. Well, what happened is all those inventories arrived and they had to cut production to get rid of them. And that gave us what to then was the most severe recession since the 30s. I don't see anything like that now. And then we had two financial crises. One, of course, was led by the Sub, uh, by the um, <clears throat> dot-com uh, blow-off in the late 90s, or socks the puppet kind of nonsense. And, of course, most recently, the the uh, most re- re- severe recession since the 30s, the 2007-2009 uh, economic decline, which was, was really the result of this huge housing bubble in subprime mortgages that literally collapsed. I don't see anything like that at the moment. There are possibilities. I mean, there's certainly a lot of corporate debt out there, much of it uh, at, at triple B rated, and that's only one step above junk. And if, if it gets downgraded, then a lot of institutions can't hold junk-rated securities. You can get a cascading effect. You've got underdeveloped countries that have borrowed heavily in dollars. Dollars rallying means it takes more of their local currency to service them. And, of course, the trade war uh, with China, if not, if not Mexico and, and Europe, uh, that's that that you don't know how that's going to play out, and you know Trump's strategy seems to be to keep everybody on edge, but that certainly could uh, create so much uncertainty as to turn a run-of-the-mill recession into something much more severe. And uh, Dr. Schilling, how do you think the Fed is going to react? I mean, there's a lot of political pressure now to uh, have the Fed reduce interest rates. Uh, do you think that that'll be a reality? Oh, sure. You know, the Fed is, as usual, behind the curve. Uh, they have all kinds of forecasts, but when you look at how they actually run monetary policy, they do it on the basis of current data. They try to react uh, quickly because 
there are lags with which monetary policy takes effect. Uh, but they, they up through late December, were raising rates looking. Uh, they believed in this Phillips curve that said the low unemployment was going to spawn inflation. It hasn't. Uh, but they, they were more wrapped up in the theory than they were looking out the window of reality. Uh, they finally decided to switch, and I think that was Jay Powell. He's a, he's the first non-PhD economist in, in the last three, and as a PhD economist, I'm glad we got somebody else in there because he's not a theoretician. Uh, but the Fed was, was, uh, overdoing, probably, and we'll find out was overdoing tight credit, and they've, they've shifted toward a pause. They haven't actually cut rates yet, but they pretty much said they're going to. Uh, so they are, they are shifting gears, but what the Fed does at this point won't won't really have any effect on whether we have a recession or not. Now I know that equity investors who look back at the Fed and all that that Fed largesse, knocking rates down to zero, and then all the quantitative easing, that in my mind is what re- re- propelled stocks from uh, their low in March of 2009 till their high of, of last year. Uh, and and everybody says, okay, if the Fed cuts rates, it's all clear, nothing else matters. But you say, why does the Fed cut rates? Fed cuts rates because they're worried that they've overdone and precipitate a recession. And if you look at the at the uh, releases from their uh, from their meeting uh, from their Fed meeting on June on June 19th, and then and then Chairman Powell's press conference, they're very worried about a recession. As you, if you read between the lines. So do we see rates, in your view, going back to zero again? Uh, you mentioned in your newsletter that you know there are negative interest rates now in Europe and Japan. I think I had a guest on the program that said it was the equivalent of $12 trillion US, U.S. dollars at negative interest rates, if memory serves, uh, which in and of itself seems like lunacy to me. But uh, do we get back there again? Oh, I, I think so. But in contrast to the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, the Fed has basically said they're not going to go to negative rates. Those two central banks have negative rates. The whole idea is that if you pay people to borrow, they'll borrow more, spend, invest, and so on. But the opposite has happened. Rather than do that, people say, oh, my goodness, my assets are not, they're actually appreciating with negative rates. I'm going to have to save more for retirement or to buy a house or whatever. So it has the opposite effects. It increases savings as opposed to spending and investing. The Fed says they're not going to, go below zero. But what they have said, and there was an uh, important study by the economists and uh, Federal Reserve Board in Washington last year that basically said if they get to zero, then they would turn to more quantitative easing. Now, that didn't do much good earlier. Uh, it, most of it went into stocks as far as I can analyze it, but uh, they haven't got much else they could do. So, at what point do investors, I mean, I, I read an article that uh, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is saying the dollar can't be the reserve currency anymore, and a lot of that may be, you know, just the the the, the normal back and forth that we get. But uh, at, at what point does all this quantitative easing and negative interest rates? At what point does it stop? <laughs> well, it, it 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 probably doesn't stop until you have a semblance of of economic growth, and Europe is in much weaker condition than the U.S. Japan has been in a deflationary depression for 20 years. They've had deflation more more times than not. And, of course, that has encouraged people to save, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to, to postpone spending, to save, because they say prices are going to be cheaper later. And if you look at what the Fed's statement was on, on June 20th, that's, they said that very clearly. They, 
They're worried about the effects of low inflation deterring spending and resulting in a weaker economy. So I, I think that this is this is going to take a long time to to play out, and uh, it it may be it may be some years before you see anything but a deflationary environment. Long run, uh, you know, the norm in peacetime in this country is deflation. Uh, inflation is a wartime phenomenon, interestingly enough. And and uh, we very well could see chronic deflation. It doesn't mean low growth necessarily. The latter half of the 1900s, we had the most rapid growth we've ever had for 30 years, and wholesale prices were declining over 2% a year on average. So it's not the end of the world, but it's a different world, and the adaptation to it is something that is going on now. And, and the Fed, first and foremost, is struggling with adapting to this new environment. They simply cannot quite accept it. So, Dr. Schilling, we we have all the we have we have low interest rates. We have negative interest rates in some parts of the world. We've had quantitative easing, which is basically money creation. How can we possibly have those those policy responses and deflation? Can you explain that to the listeners? Well, it simply says that the you know deflation is a matter of having more supply in the world than demand. If you have that, you have you have prices going down. If you have more demand than supply prices go up. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And when you look at the situation now, you look not just at the U.S., you're looking at it on a global basis. And with the with the transfer of Western technology to very cheap production venues, first and foremost China, the, the world is just, is just potentially flooded with excess productive capacity. And of course, now you've got India, who's really the, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, so I, I think what you, what you really are, are looking at is that all these stimulative mem- uh, measures have been simply swamped by these fundamental deflationary forces of excess supply. Uh, Gary, in your opinion, um, this this trade war, this the, the, these these imposing of tariffs, uh, to what extent is that contributing to the recession, uh, at, if at all? It it yes it is because it creates uncertainty. Now I think the the effects of this are way overrated. Uh, matter of fact, we we did a study on this. I did one of my Bloomberg columns on this recently, uh, and and it and it really in effect a twenty five percent tariff on all our Chinese imports. On the surface, that would increase prices by one percent. And probably more because all the competitors with those imports could then raise their prices. But in actual fact, it's likely to be more deflationary because it uh, it causes so much uncertainty that people cut back their spending. And then, of course, you get uh, production moving out of China to, to areas that are not in the direct line of fire, like Vietnam and Bangladesh and Thailand and so on and so forth. Uh, so you have, and 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 uh, in this country, a lot of pressure on on retailers to cut prices. They've got excess inventories right now. They're, uh, the bricks and mortar retailers are beset with Amazon, and so I think you're going to, in the end of the day, it's probably going to be more deflationary than inflationary. Interesting. Well, we are out of time for this segment as we close. Let me remind everyone that uh, Dr. Schilling's Insight Newsletter is a terrific comprehensive report that uh, he publishes each month. If you would like to learn more about the newsletter, you can call 888-346-7444. The website is www.agaryshilling.com. I'll give you the phone number one more time. It's 888-346-7444. And I will return with Dr. A. Gary Schilling after these words. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting once again today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, if you're just joining us, Dr. Schilling's Insight Newsletter is a terrifically comprehensive 30 to 40 page report that includes extensive overviews on the economy as well as investment forecasting. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, 888-346-7444 is the number. Uh, Dr. Schilling, it seems to me that when we had the tax package passed, the tax cut passed uh, now a year and a half ago or so, that that provided some juice for the economy. Correct me if you disagree. Will they try a repeat performance prior to the election just to try to keep things moving? It would be very difficult for several reasons. One is that it was a massive cut in corporate tax rates. And that was that was logical because our rates were higher than almost any other major country in the world, and it it distorted the whole system, led to U.S. corporations keeping money abroad uh, where their taxes were lower, not bringing it back here. Uh, So that made sense. As far as individual taxes are concerned, the dilemma there is that that it's the people on the top that pay the taxes. Uh, The top 1% pays about 30% of of uh, individual income taxes, the bottom 50% pays 3%. What it means if you cut, if you want to cut taxes for individuals meaningfully, and you're not going to negative taxes, you've got to do it for people on the top. Well, there are two problems with that. One is the Democrats, that's just anathema to them, the idea of favoring uh, higher taxpayer and with the polarization of income we've had in, in really, in recent decades, but more more uh, painfully in recent years, uh, the idea of favoring the, the guys that are already making a lot of money with lower lower after-tax incomes just won't fly among the Democrats. The other issue is that the people on top don't change their spending plans that much in relation to their after-tax incomes. They've already got all, you know, pretty much the cars and houses and vacations they want. People on the bottom, most a lot of them just are hand-to-mouth. They're spending every nickel they have and and everything they can borrow, uh, so they're much more responsive. But the people on the top, you not you don't get really much bang for buck with changes in in tax rates. So uh, for those two reasons, I don't think it's likely to see anything uh, in individual tax cuts. As I say, corporates they've pretty well done that. So I I think that the the stimulus which will come in reaction to the recession that I think we're probably already in, probably it'll be infrastructure spending. Uh, and there's 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 widespread agreement among Democrats and, re- and Republicans that we need to improve our roads and 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 streets and airports, train stations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the 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 hang-up has been how to pay for it, and uh, you know the Democrats basically say, well, don't don't worry about the funding. The Republicans want uh, want uh, some private uh, involvement, and so on. But now I'd say. The the fear of deficits has largely disappeared in Washington, and you get into a recession, a, any incumbent uh, is is worried and wants to be uh, on the side of the angels. So I, I think we're in a recession. You'll probably see some very substantial infrastructure spending bills. So, Dr. Schilling, to what extent is private sector debt playing into your assessment that we're in a recession, if at all? Um, when you look at student loan debt, you look at credit card debt, you look at auto debt, um, those, de- those debt levels are all very high, and obviously that has to be somewhat of a drag on new spending. 
Well, 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 it is, uh, but probably not as much as you might think. I mean, the student loan uh, debt is a, is a serious problem. But if you look at the reality, most of these uh, people who are coming out of school with big debts, they're, they're simply not paying them. Uh, that's why the delinquency rate is very high. And some of them, of course, have are into these plans where they pay a percentage of their income for the next 10, 10 years or so, and after 20 years, it's it's all forgiven. So there, it isn't. It may be a psychological strain, but it isn't. It isn't extracting a lot of money from the uh, from the economy. Auto debt. Auto debt is is very much linked one to one with auto sales. About 85 percent of cars on the road are are financed on time, and so if you have strong auto sales, you have you have a big auto debt, but it 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 really, of course, it has to be re, has to be repaid. Those things are drags, uh, but on the other hand, uh, mortgage debt has been been worked down since the uh, collapse in subprime mortgages, and that's brought the. If you look at the overall amount of 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 of, of individual borrowing, you know, credit cards, auto loans, student loans, mortgages, and so on, you look at all that in relation to to after-tax income has actually declined substantially uh, since uh, 2000. Well, the peak was in 2003. It, it, it peaked out. Uh, the ratio then was about 130%. Now it's 94%. Now it's still above the long-term average of about 85%, and I think it'll be worked down further in future years. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not something that's brand new on the, on the horizon. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. The website is agaryshilling.com. And if you'd like to learn more about his Insight newsletter, the phone number is 888-346-7444. So based on that last comment, Gary, give the listeners your assessment of the housing market and then maybe a forecast moving ahead. Yeah. Well, housing is very interest rate sensitive. It's a small sector of the economy. It averages about you know four or five percent of GDP, which is the sum of all goods and services produced uh, per year. Uh, but it, since it's so volatile, it is important. Now, of course, housing had a huge run-up uh, with the subprime uh, nonsense that people who couldn't afford chicken coops were were <laughs> technically owning <laughs> mansions, and and but that that collapsed, and it never has it never has recovered that much. And of course, you've had a big swing to rentals as opposed to home ownership. Home ownership is still it's recovered some of it's still depressed. So housing is not is not a very vulnerable area right now. It's not a major player in the economy. Now we we did have of course the earlier run up in interest rates with the Fed starting in December of fifteen. Uh, raising rates and and some of that work on the short end spills over to to ten year treasury yields, which are pretty much the link to thirty year fixed rate mortgages. Very strong linkage between those two. Uh, so you did have some increase, and in it and it was detrimental to housing. Now, of course, interest rates are going down, and uh, you're getting the opposite effects. Uh, there's been a, a big jump in re- in mortgage refinancing recently, and so on. Uh, housing is probably getting near the bottom, but it, 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 the financing at the affordability is one thing, but people's willingness to go out and and uh, make a commitment for a new house or something else. If you're in a recession, when jobs are disappearing, uh, the two the two uh, obviously do have offsetting effects, and you never you usually don't get strong revival of housing until late in the recession. But it does tend to revive before the general economy because interest rates by then are are declining and 
not only the Fed reducing rates in reaction to the recession, but simply the fact that in a recession there's less demand for credit and and uh, treasury bonds are a safe haven and that spills over to mortgage uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgage rates. So, Dr. Schilling, given that we're expecting or, or you're, you're forecasting that we'll probably see interest rates decline here, uh, what does that do to stocks? What is your forecast overall for equities? I think equities are very, very expensive. If you look at it in a long-term sense, uh, they're about 40% above their long-term average right now. And they've been that way since the early 90s, so if those long-term averages still hold, you're probably going to see uh, lower price-earnings ratios in the future. I would say we're probably in a period of, of much uh, much lower stock appreciation, and it could could be they could be pretty... Uh, pretty unexcited, exciting for a number of years. Uh, Of course, that's longer term. In the immediate situation, you've got so many signs that are pointing to recessions, and and one of the key ones has been the decline in in, uh, Treasury uh, note and bond uh, uh, yields. uh, But stocks have held up, and I think it's because, I mentioned earlier, investors have looked back to the stock, to the Fed, and all this money had pumped out uh, pushing up stocks from their low in March of 2009 to last year, and they say to say, as long as the Fed is easing, everything is fine. Well, again, they have to worry about why the Fed is easing. So uh, I, I think that stocks probably have a have a, a decline there. Now we've looked at it, and if we have an average recession, and take out those those three uh, special ones that I noted in an earlier segment, uh, then uh, and you have an average decline in stock prices from the peak. You would end up with a decline uh, from the peak of about 22%, but that wouldn't take you much below where it was on Christmas Eve. That decline from October 3rd uh, took the S&P 500 down almost 20%, so you wouldn't have a decline much below that. But, of course, it would be declined from where we are now of about 20%. So in your newsletter, um, you're suggesting to short commodities. Can you expand on that thought? Yeah. The whole idea is that commodities are are very much linked to economic activity. Uh, My favorite is copper uh, because almost anything manufactured has copper going into it. And there's no cartel that disrupts copper. I mean, for example, you look at oil. Uh, Oil, the the economic fundamentals uh, are not are often super, superseded by what's happening with the with the Russians and the and the uh, Saudis in terms of prices, or you get some uh, attack attack in the in the Persian Gulf, attacking a ship, shooting down a drone or whatever. You get extraneous things, but copper doesn't have that, and copper has been declining, and that's very much a symbol of declining uh, worldwide industrial production, and especially in China that that consumes about half of the world's copper year by year, and of course they use that to turn into exports that go to North America and Europe. Uh, so, so I think that commodities uh, are going are to continue to be weak. Uh, they're not only a good indicator of a forthcoming recession, but they will be even weaker as a recession unfolds. And I've got time for one more question here. I've just got to get your take on agricultural commodities, if you have an opinion. Well, agricultural commodities, again, they're, they're, they're tricky because they're so much governed by by weather, and of course now with the Trump's trade war, uh, the question of whether the Chinese are willing to buy 
U.S. soybeans and so on. But uh, so I, again, I think that's that's a very specialized area. But the one area uh, that we didn't talk about that I've been very very keen on, and I actually have been since 1981, are long-term Treasury bonds. And since since uh, the early 80s. Uh, Treasury bonds have outperformed, have outperformed the S&P 500 by five times. They've risen five times as much as the S&P, and that's including dividends as well as price appreciation for stocks. And I still think they're uh, a, a, a very attractive uh, a buy. I, I, we could see another 20% appreciation in 30-year Treasury bonds if they go down to my target of 2%. And you'll see less bang for buck uh, if if you did decline in ten-year uh, Treasury note yields, but I think they're going to one percent. They're just now about two percent. So uh, there's there's I think that that's a, that that makes a lot of sense. In terms of stocks, I think you got to be defensive in portfolios. We're managed uh, managed. We're in we're in things like utilities, uh, healthcare, consumer staples, things where spending continues pretty much regardless of the state of incomes in the economy. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. His Insight Newsletter is great reading. I would encourage you to check it out. You can do that by calling 888-346-7444 or visiting www.agaryshilling.com. And, Gary, pleasure to have you back on the program. Always appreciate your insights. Hope you'll come back. I sure hope to. Thanks a lot, Dennis. We will be back after these words. This is RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. You know, if you haven't yet gotten your copy of the best-selling book, New Retirement Rules, you can go to the website, newretirementrulesbook.com, and let us know where to mail your free copy, and we would be glad to send you one. You know, I picked up an article this past week authored by a gentleman by the name of Daniel Mitchell, who is a Washington-based economist. And it's very interesting how job growth is really accelerating in low-tax states versus high-tax states. In fact, Mr. Mitchell starts his article by saying that Americans are voting with their feet by moving to states where the politicians are taking less of their income. Now, one such example that Mr. Mitchell points out in his article is the, we'll just call it a battle between the states of Texas and California. Now, interestingly, one look at U-Haul rates for a 26-foot truck rental this month tells the story. If you want to rent the 26-foot U-Haul truck, and take it one way from Los Angeles to Houston, it will cost you $3,965. On the other hand, if you want to take it one way from Houston to Los Angeles, it's $967. About four to one. To take it from LA to Houston, four grand. Houston to Los Angeles, about a grand. If you want to go from San Francisco to Houston, 
It's $4,600, 4575 to be exact. And Houston back to San Francisco, only $1,115. Why is that? Demand tells the story. Demand drives price. When there's greater demand, price goes up. When there's not as much demand, prices drop. It's the principle you learn back in Economics 101. If you want to go from Los Angeles to Dallas, that U-Haul truck's going to cost you $3,800. To drive from Dallas back to Los Angeles, it's $1,138. San Francisco to Dallas, $4,275. In the reverse direction, from Dallas back to San Francisco, $1,282. Now, the very obvious takeaway from this data is that more people are moving from California to Texas than the other way around. Now, the top state income tax rate in California is 13.3%. Texas has no state income tax. Now, Mr. Mitchell points out that sometimes he gets pushback from some of his friends who point out that California's 13.3% tax rate only applies to millionaires. And while that's true, Mr. Mitchell makes an effective argument against such a tax. He said, why do you want to penalize the state's most productive citizens, especially when they're the ones who can easily afford to move, and many of them are doing exactly that? Now, for the record, the 8% tax rate kicks in at just $44,000 worth of income. Now, if I had time, I could make a similar comparison between, between the states of Florida and New York. U-Haul rates are similar. Tax rates are similar. Now, Chuck DeVore, who is a Texas Public Policy Foundation expert, wrote in Forbes how and why low-tax states are outperforming higher-tax states. He says that when you take a look at low-tax states versus high-tax states, during the period of time from January of 2016 to December of 2017, job growth in the low-tax states was about 35% more rapid over that time frame. However, job growth now is 80% stronger in low-tax states rather than in high-tax states since the passage of the tax package, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, back in December of 2017. Now, part of the reason for this is that that act capped the state and local tax deduction at $10,000. So income tax filers in high-tax states saw a relatively smaller tax cut, while those in lower tax rates, tax states rather, saw a much higher tax cut. So the bottom line is this. Private sector job growth is now running 80% faster in the low-tax states, 2% annualized, compared to 1.1%, up from just a 35% advantage in the prior 23 months. Now, Mr. DeVore suggests how the high-tax states might respond. 
He said if political leaders in states accustomed to taxing and spending far more than their frugal peers wish to participate in higher rates of job creation, here's what they should do. They should reform their own fiscal houses rather than expecting their neighbors to subsidize their high spending ways. But that does not appear to be happening. Illinois is a high-tax state. The new governor there, J.B. Pritzker, wants to undo the state's 4.95% flat tax and impose a progressive tax with a top rate of nearly 8%. The same is happening in New Jersey, where Governor Phil Murphy is proposing $1.7 billion in new taxes. We talk about all matters economic and how it affects you and your nest egg in the new retirement rules book. I would encourage you to visit the website, newretirementrulesbook.com, to request your copy. We also have resources at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can go check out our resources there. Again, that website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can also download the podcast of this program there as well. That's our program. Hope you enjoyed it and got something you can use. <laughs> 